Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Good to see you this morning. Looking forward to being with you at the members meeting. Those of you who are members, uh, looking forward to spending time with you and baptizing, seeing some baptisms. We have, I believe, four people being baptized this evening. So that is exciting. We have a couple of more who are preparing for baptism. We'll be baptized at our next members meeting. And uh, so we are um, really thankful for that, humbled by that. Uh, Salvation is the Lord's work. It is not my work or your work. It is the work of the Lord. And so when we, we see baptisms, what we're acknowledging is God's work of grace in someone's life. And they, as they join with us uh, in the church. So I, I encourage you, if at all possible, be there tonight for uh, our celebration uh, baptism. And then members meeting, we have several members joining with us. And you don't want to miss that. This week has been an interesting week in the news. I don't know how much you pay attention to the news. Hopefully you pay attention to the news less, you know, than most people. It's not very encouraging usually, and there's a lot of things we need to stay away from. But this week has been a very interesting week in the news as we've watched a search, a search take place for five men lost uh, at sea as they were going to uh, see the Titanic. The irony of it, I can't miss, the fact that mankind has this fascination with the sea, the fascination with the Titanic. You remember the Titanic, right? The Titanic was the unseekable ship that on its very first voyage experienced a catastrophe that sunk the vessel. And here you have a submersible built by a man who is pushing boundaries, pushing limits, breaking rules in his own language, and again experiences a catastrophe that took the lives of five men. It's interesting that that story takes place this week because we come to a text in Acts chapter 27 that focuses on the sea, focuses on this part of God's creation. I I think this part of God's creation which humbles mankind more than any other. This sea which holds fascination for people and yet it is unable to be conquered Unable to be comprehended, its vastness, its depths, its power. Is there anything in God's creation which creates so so much awe? And if you, like me, have stood at the ocean and looked out across its vastness, you have experienced an insignificance, this feeling of insignificance and smallness, which is good for us to experience. The sea proclaims to us this message that there is a God and we are not Him. Our desire to control it and to conquer it, I think, is an evidence of our arrogance as mankind. 
The sea is a theme throughout all of Scripture. It was the chaotic waters. Remember Genesis 1? The chaotic waters that covered the face of the earth. Did you know that, that earth, the chaotic waters, God created land out of the midst of that chaotic sea. It was the waters, the waters of chaos and destruction that God used to cover over the land again. And that then he recreated in the time of Noah from the midst of those waters. It was the waters, the powerful, mighty waters that God, in the time of Moses, parted. He parted the sea and his people, he formed a people through that sea. They walked across on dry ground to the other side and that sea he then collapsed, defeating the enemies of his people. It was the sea that opposed his prophet. Do you remember the story of Jonah as his prophet seeks to flee from the presence of, the God, of God, of his God? He flees across the sea and God opposes him and brings him back to land to obedience And it's that very same sea, the same sea that Jonah sought to cross in fleeing from God's presence, fleeing from his God. It's that very same sea here in this story that his apostle seeks to get across, not to flee from God's presence, but in this instant to take the message of the gospel to Caesar, to Rome. Paul crosses this sea because he must get to Rome. His apostle, the apostle of the Lord, wants to take the good news of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God which has been established and mediated in the name of his son, King, God's appointed, anointed son. That good news must get to Rome. And Paul the willing servant, obedient servant, is taking it across the sea. But in this story, the sea seeks to oppose that mission. Hasn't that been the story of Acts the entire time? If you've been with us, the entire story of Acts, every page of the book of Acts, there is opposition that rises up seeking to keep God's message from going out, from going forth. And here in chapter 27 and 28, we see that opposition is the sea itself. Creation itself seeks to keep the message from going forth. But as we've seen throughout the entire book of Acts, God's message, the gospel message, will prevail and will continue and will reach its destination. Paul wants to get to Rome. Chapter 19, verse 21, he tells us that. He wants to get to Rome and preach the gospel there. In chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord himself stands by Paul and says, 
you must testify to me at Rome. And so the trajectory has been set. It is Paul's desire to get to Rome, and it is God's promise that Paul will get to Rome. This narrative, chapter 27, 28, covers that journey from Caesarea, where we last left Paul under arrest, under trial for his faith and for the hope of the resurrection. He will go from Caesarea now to Rome. It's not a fantastical story, as would be a a sea voyage story of that day. This is not a mythical story. It doesn't have any sea dragons or anything like that. This story is not a story that Luke decides to give us for some entertainment. You know, he's coming to the end of the book and he says, you know, I've been, I've been, you know, telling this story of the progress and the, the growth of the gospel. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give a story for entertainment at this point in time. No, this is not an entertaining story. This story is given by Luke. This account was put here on purpose. It's a real story. I want you to see that as we're going to walk through it. I want you to see the historical detail that Luke includes. I want you to see the names of the places, the real places. I want you to see the real nautical terms. Now, I am not a nautical person. I hate getting on boats and ships. I have no desire. Some of you are like, oh, I'd be on the boat every weekend if I could. That's the last place I want to be on the weekend. And you're like, oh, yeah, I love it when you say something like that. But like, well, you've never tried it. Are you serious? I've tried it multiple times, and I hate it. Don't get on a boat. What's the point? You just get sick. Same with skiing. People are like, well, you've never tried it. Yes, I have. I don't like it. Stop pressuring me. Okay. So. I want you to see in this story the detail of nautical terms and real historical places. This is not a fantastical, mythical, uh, or put there just for entertainment's sake. Luke has included this story of Paul's journey to Rome because he has a point that he's trying to make. He wants to instruct God's people. So the question that we need to ask about this story, okay, this story is a real story. It actually happened. Why does Luke include it here? What's the point? For God's people. What do God's people need to see and hear in this story? And that's what we want to find and investigate. In order to do that, we want to walk through the story. I'm not going to have you stand today. We are, it's our custom to stand as we read God's word because of the length and because of the way I'm going to approach the text today. I'm not going to have you stand. We're just going to walk through the entire story. I'm going to take breaks here just to kind of explain, make sure you're understanding the progress of the story. And then at the end, we'll make the point. I think there's one point. And then we'll look at an implication, just one implication of that point, okay? So we'll have one point and then one implication of that point. Let's start there in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. Open your Bibles there and look at it. Chapter 27, verse 1. By the way, by the way, here's a map. I'm not, this is not for you to see, obviously, okay? Here's a map. This is, this is kind of like a map that's probably at the back of your Bible, These maps aren't there for no reason. They're they're there for you to look at. 
Again, to see that these are real places, this is a real journey. I thought about copying this and handing it out to everybody. I decided to save the money. But you have a, a map there in the back of your Bible you should be able to look at. I would encourage you to maybe have a, a thumb at that map and be looking as we pro- progress through this story, okay? Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, by the way, who's deciding that? Paul's not deciding when it's time. He's imprisoned. He's a prisoner. Decisions are being made for him, okay? And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now, so Aristarchus, we met him back in chapter 20. Aristarchus is one of Paul's fellow laborers. Say, well, why why is he going along on the journey? Because Paul's a prisoner, but unlike our day, nobody provides for his needs. It is not the responsibility of the captors or of the, the, the guards to provide for the prisoners' needs. They have to have somebody come along with them to provide what they need. And so Aristarchus is that guy. We also know that someone else is on the journey, and that's Luke. Notice how he says, we should sail. So Luke is with Paul and Aristarchus. All right. Accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. That's not the first time or the last time Paul will be treated kindly by those who are not believers. And here, Julius treats him kindly. We'll see that again here in a little bit. Verse 4, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now that's a term that you might not know. They sail under the lee. They sail on the side of the island that protects them from the wind. That's what that means. Sometimes that's on the south side of the island. Sometimes that's on the north side of the island. But it's again, again a protection against the wind. That's what they seek to do under Cyprus. Because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Okay, so Alexandria would be sending its grain to Rome. There were a lot of ships, a lot of grain ships from Alexandria that would go to Rome. And the the centurion finds one of these ships. They don't need to keep on going up the coasts of Asia. They need to get across to Rome. So get on board a ship from Alexandria. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Samoan. Coast along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, they come to Fair Havens. That sounds like a place I'd want to stay, especially if you're having difficulty, but they decide it's not the best place to stay during the winter. The way the port is situated, it's not a a place to stay during the winter. But it's been difficult up to this point. The wind's not been for them, it's been against them, and they're, they're sailing very slowly. 
So verse 9, it says that, Since much time has passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, that's the Day of Atonement that the Jews celebrated, and that's in October. So we're getting into late October. Winter's coming fast. They don't want to put out to sea during winter. That would be disastrous. So it's getting late. Therefore, Paul, look at it, verse 9, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So Paul's telling them, don't go any farther. It's not going to go well. There's an ominous warning here. But the centurion, and you would understand it reasonably so, Paul's a prisoner. So he doesn't want to listen to Paul. He'd rather listen to the pilot. He'd rather listen to those who know what they're talking about. And so he prefers the pilot's voice and wisdom over Paul's. And he's going to pay for it. Verse number 12. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. See, even then they were trying to winter in Phoenix. Isn't that... That's a bad joke. It's a terrible place to winter, by the way. Anyway. Have you been there? Yes, I've been there. It's not a great place. Anyway. Sorry, I I need to restrain myself. On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So Fair Havens is on the island of Crete, but it's not a suitable harbor. And so they're going to go from kind of the middle of Crete, if you looked at your map, and they're going to go to the western end of Crete where Phoenix is, where the port is where they can winter. Now verse 13, this is when it begins. The storm begins. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, so it starts out, well enough. Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. That means they brought up the anchors, okay? They bring up the anchors and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So a northeaster comes a very mighty wind. This is actually kind of like a typhoon. So a great storm comes and they cannot face the wind. They cannot sail through the wind and they are forced to be driven by the wind. Verse 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So they had a boat there on the ship, would be for getting off and going into shore or whatever. They secured the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they, they tied ropes probably around the ship to try to keep it together. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. Now, the Sirtis, if you have that map, the Sirtis is, is off the north coast of Africa. It's, it's kind of like the graveyard, the death valley of ships. You don't want to go down into the Sirtis. Rocks and shoals, much danger is there, and they're afraid we're going to be driven down there into this graveyard and surely be destroyed. They fear, feared going and running aground on the Sirtis. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
since we were, verse, 19, verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, lightening the ship. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, a great tempest, a great storm was upon them. What, what's, what's it saying here? There's no way to see the stars. There's no navigation. The great, they're in the midst of the great storm. At the end of verse 20, because of these things, there's no navigation. There's no way to know where we're going. There's no way to control the ship. All hope of our being saved was the last abandoned. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. There's nothing they can do. They're at the mercy of the storm. There's nothing they can do to change their situation. All hope of being saved was abandoned. What a moment, what a situation. Do you ever stop and just think about phrases that you read in the Bible? What, is, what does that look like on board that ship? All hope is abandoned. Now verse 21 through 26. I think here in verse 21 through 26, we, we have the point really given to us. Look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Okay, what, what is Paul doing here? Is he, is he saying, well, you should have listened. Told you so. Is that what he's doing? Is that the spirit of what he's doing? No, what, what he's doing is saying, you didn't listen to my wisdom the first time. And you should have. Now we've abandoned all hope of being saved. You should have listened to me in the first place, but listen to me now. Listen to me now. Okay, that's what he's really saying. Verse 22, right? You should have listened to me, verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. What? Did you just read the last verse? All hope is lost of being saved. There's nothing we can do. What do you mean take heart? But that's what he says. I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Oh, there's that promise he made back in verse 11 of chapter 23. You're going to Rome. Don't be afraid, Paul. Why? Because you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, Paul says. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here's what Paul says. Take heart. Take courage, because God has promised me that I'm going to get to Rome. And he has promised that none of you will die. And I believe that God keeps his promises. So take heart. It's going to be exactly as God has said. 
We'll return, obviously, to that in just a moment. Let's finish out the story. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So it's been two weeks. Two weeks. Imagine that, two weeks of being driven by the wind and the storm. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A fathom is about the height of a man. And so they know that they're getting closer and closer to land. Verse 29, fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern. That's the back of the boat, the back of the ship. And prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, the front of the ship, so there's soldiers that want to get off and leave, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And they listened to Paul. They listened. They cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn... Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. They've been so anxious. They've been so sick. They can't eat. Have you ever been to that point in your life? I can't eat. So anxious. Life and death is at stake. It's not a time for food. He says, take some food. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. What an amazing sight, right? In the midst of this storm, in the midst of this situation, when he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse number 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. Again, that's the front of the ship. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now I want you to see that, that verse again. And, and so it was that all were brought safely to land, just as God had promised. Now we, we want to finish chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, the trip's not over yet, they got to get to Rome, right? After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people, that is the Barbaroi, the, the natives, the barbarians, okay? These were not considered civilized people, cultured people. They spoke a different language. They were natives, barbarians. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed, welcomed us all. Because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. It bit him. 
When the barbarians, the native people, saw the creature, right, very superstitious, hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice. You notice justice is a capital J there? So it's talking about the God of justice. Justice has pursued him and has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So they go from thinking that he is a criminal, that justice is pursuing to death. He's not going to get away with anything. Now they think he's a god. Now I wouldn't, I wouldn't, listen, I wouldn't preach a whole sermon on this. I, I, I wouldn't preach a whole sermon on this. I think it, though, worth mentioning. Here he is. On the island of Malta, a viper comes up to bite his hand. A viper. A snake. But the snake, the serpent, can't kill him. Because God has made him a promise. And God will carry out what he has promised. I think there is some symbolism there. Again, I wouldn't build a whole sermon on it. So again, put your flag back in. I'm not like allegorizing or spiritualizing. I think it's interesting though, the snake can't, can't stop Paul. And our great enemy, who is also a serpent, he cannot prevent the progress of the gospel. God preserves his servant. Not only that, look at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Do you see that all the way throughout? There's this hospitality going on all the way throughout. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. The curse of sin is being reversed. Paul, who's bringing the message of the gospel to Caesar along the way, is bringing hope and the message of the kingdom to those he meets along the way. Verse 10, this causes them to honor us greatly. It says, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. God is providing through these people. Verse 11, after three months... We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, another grain trip, uh, ship, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Castor and Pollux. You know those names, Castor and Pollux? That's, those are the twin gods. They were the ones who were supposed to be the patrons, the gods, the patrons of shipwrecked sailors. They were the ones who were supposed to be prayed to and given uh, honor to... to ensure safety. I think it's ironic who's the one that actually causes safety and brings Paul and his entourage all the way to Rome. Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now look at this. And the brothers there... That is the brothers in Rome, okay? When they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius, 
and three taverns to meet us. And so those believers in Rome actually leave Rome and come out to be a greeting party for Paul and meet him as he's coming into Rome. On seeing them, the brothers and sisters come out to meet him, Paul thanked God and took courage. The encouragement of the brethren there. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And now we have Paul all the way to Rome. God has brought him safely to his destination. So what's the point? We looked at it briefly in verse 21 through 26. What's the point of this wonderful story? Here it is. What is it that God's people need to see in here? Here it is. God makes promises to his people. And he keeps them all. God makes promises to his people and he keeps them all. This is what you see in verse 21 through 26. Paul has a vision or a visitor from God who tells him that no one on the ship will die. Paul takes that message and delivers it to the people and they can believe him or not. Thankfully, they believe him. They believe the word that he's received from God. This little scene serves as a microcosm of the bigger picture. God has told Paul that he will go to Rome and that is what will happen. God makes promises to his people and he keeps them all. When God has said he will do something, this is exactly what God will do. When God has made a promise, he keeps it. Now, there's a couple of questions that go along with this propositional truth, right? I mean, I could could just say, amen, amen, let's go home. Let's pray and go home. God makes promises to his people and he keeps them all. Amen? Let's go home, right? What else do we need? Well, let's think about it for a second. Here's one question I had. Why doesn't God, okay, he makes promises to his people and he keeps them all. Why doesn't God just take us from point A to point B in a straight line? If God's made a promise and that's what he's going to do, why doesn't he just take us from where we are to where he's promised to take us? Well, what's with all the detours? I mean, isn't God mightier than the ocean? Isn't God mightier than the sea? Doesn't God command the waves? If he wanted to get Paul to Rome, just take him from Caesarea to Rome. Consider all the varied means that God uses to do exactly what he promised to do. Consider all the interactions, all the people. Right? He takes Paul to Rome under arrest. Why? Because the Jews have opposed him. He stands before these Roman officials, these great Roman officials. They try him. It's Paul who appeals to Caesar. These Roman officials send him to Caesar because that's where he's appealed, but he goes there under arrest. Why, why does it have to be that way? Why doesn't God make calm seas? Can you think of any reason why? God does what he says he will do and the way that he does it. 
Can you think of any reasons why? I thought of a couple. Number one, God delights. God delights in displaying his character. God delights in displaying who he is. God delights in displaying his power. God delights in displaying his faithfulness. God delights in revealing his glory to us. And not only to us, not only to us as people, but also to those who live in our midst. Do you see that the point of your life is bigger than you? God is the main character on the stage of history. You are not, and I am not. Has there ever been a day that went as you planned? Has there ever been a route that worked out exactly the way you had thought it would? I used to say that all the time when when developing teaching plans. If you're a teacher, you can relate to this. Have you ever gotten through a lesson plan the way you thought you would get through? I, I love it when people haven't taught in the classroom. Well, you just make your lesson plan and then you teach it. Yeah, right. That's 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 a great great ideal. It doesn't work that way. I make out my plans and then at some point they fall apart and I've got to trust God for what he's doing and I know he's doing. God delights in displaying who he is to you so that you will know him and see him and to others who you live with. He wants to put himself on display. Here's another reason I thought of. God wants to display his character. And God is always working to grow his people. Do you know that's what he's doing in your life? He's not just taking you from point A to point B. He's actually growing you. I was, I was having fun with Jeff the other day, Jeff Pace. Maybe I said this. I, I can't remember where I say things sometimes. I was, I was kidding around with Jeff Pace because I was asking him, hey man, how, how's, your, how's your life going? Oh, it's going well. This is going well. That's going well. This is going well. I said, man, I know how to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God gives you some trouble. Because when go, things go super well, we don't tend to grow as much, do we? When the sea is really calm, trust in ourselves. We forget about God. We think that it's our own strength that got us where we're going. Our own ingenuity, our own wisdom. God is so good and so gracious and so loving and so committed to his purposes in Christ that he will do for you what you would never ask for so that he can accomplish in you something that you often can't see. He's committed to growing you in your faith, in your trust. He's committed to growing you in your awe of him. Do you have an awe of God this morning? 
When you woke up this morning and decided to come to church here and gather with God's people, did, did you have, were you carrying with you a sense of awe? This God who is a holy God, we sang that, only a holy God. Did you have that awe? Maybe as you were singing, that awe began to develop. God wants you to be in awe of him. He wants you to see your insignificance and his greatness. He wants you to trust in him, be in awe of him. And he wants to grow you in your thankfulness. As I often say, thankfulness is the result of received grace. Thankfulness is this result or this response to grace that we have received. When we see that we have received grace and the amount of grace we've received, we we are caused to be thankful, humble. This is what God is doing. He's forming us. He's growing us. That's why he's not taking us from point A to point B in a straight line. I thought of this reason as well. He delights in displaying his character. He's constantly working to grow his people. And he wants the gospel to go everywhere. The detours that happen in your life, the changes of course and the difficulties are often the means that God is using to bring the gospel to a place that needs to hear it. He wants the gospel to go everywhere. I think about those people on Malta. There was no plan to go to Malta. Malta had been forgotten about. It was a place of barbarians. What an amazing event that takes place on Malta. Did anybody plan on going to Malta? No. That's where God planned on taking them. We see God doing a mighty work there on Malta. See, where God's people go where God's people are driven by their circumstances, where God's people go, so goes his gospel. Do you understand that? Where God's people go, that's where his gospel goes. It's a silly example. I I struggle to use this example because it's kind of silly, but I got a call about four weeks ago and it was the head of the Spokane Valley Baseball, right? And his name's Bill. And Bill said, hey, is this Paul? I said, yeah. Hey, we need a coach. Can you coach your son's little league team? Nobody wants to coach. And I love my son, and I love baseball. That's not really the thing that I wanted to do, though, is coach a bunch of seven- and eight-year-olds. I thought of all the time and all the, ah, then I've got to be there for practices, and I've got to actually manage and organize this whole thing. That's not exactly what I want. But immediately, my wife and I, as we were talking about it, it's like, What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Not what we planned. Again, it's a silly example, but it makes the point. When when God delays you or changes your route, do you see the opportunity in that? When there are difficult people in your life that are in your way, do you see the opportunity in that? Or are you just frustrated because you're not getting what you want? The opportunities abound. God takes his people where he wants his gospel to go. Are you, are you known for that, by the way? Are you known for that? 
you get that call, right, that your, your flight, you're there in the airport, you get that little notification, the text notification that your flight's been delayed. Are you angry? Or are you the type of person that thinks, okay, God has me here for the next five hours. What's the reason for this, Lord? I'm looking. I'm looking for opportunities. I'm looking for opportunities either to speak the gospel or to read and, and to, to help my mind and meditate on your truth. Instead of, instead of that, we just see a delay, don't we? Ah, I hate Delta. What a, what a different perspective, though. So here's the implication. Let me give you the implication. Again, the point is, God makes promises to his people, and he keeps them all. So, because that is true, if God keeps his promises, then here's what we need to do. Here's what we must do. We need to identify what his promises are. God has made promises to his people and he will keep them all. So what are these promises? How has God promised us? And this gets into a conversation now about God's will, which is a bigger conversation than we have time to talk about, but just just a little bit here. We're going to talk about God's will and our understanding of God's will. I want you to hear this. God's will for your life. This is big, okay? This is really big. God's will for your life is formed around the promises he has made in Christ. God's will for your life, God's will for your life is formed around the promises he has made us in Christ. He is not doing something else. And I find often people separate the promises that are theirs in Christ from what they think of as the will of God. See, the will of God is not a vocation. The will of God is not a person. You, you know, people think, well, I've got to find my soulmate. I'm going to find the one. No, no it doesn't work like that. There's not a one out there. God's will is not a place geographically. It is not a person. It is not a job. It is not a certain level of success. That's not, when we talk about God's will, that's not God's promises to you. I've got to be really careful. God has not promised you a spouse that will love you. Did you know that? God has not made that promise to you. God has not made you a promise that you'll even have a spouse. God has not made you a promise that you will be healthy. God has not promised you that you will have everything financially that you need. God has not promised you any of these things. And yet when people talk about God's will, that's what they're focused on more often than not. That's what we pray for more often than not. This is not God's will. God's will is shaped and formed around his promises he's made us in Christ. God's will, Ephesians 1, his purpose is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. 
That is what God is doing. You say, well, what, what is God's will? He's already told us what his will is. He's already told us what he's doing. Now the question is, God, how are you doing that in my life, in this situation and in the circumstance? And I want to embrace those promises you've given me in Christ. I want to shape my life and form my life and guide my life by those promises. I, I think there's a lot of people who are really confused and very desperate to find out, what is God doing? What, what does God want me to do? God wants you to glorify his son. God wants you to make much of Jesus. And he is committed to doing that in your life. No matter what. In fact, he uses the circumstances in your life to accomplish just that purpose. God's will for our life is formed around the promises he has made us in Christ. His will, and I I kind of already said this, but I'm going to say it more clearly. His will is not shaped around our desires and our wants or our lives. His will is not shaped around our desires. His will is not shaped around our lives. Like if we stop and thought about that, that is a gross thought. Like like God is shaped, God and his will is shaped around each one of our individual desires in life. That, that is not the truth. That is not the case. That's often how we think of it. How gross of a thought is that? That God would base everything he's doing in the universe around me and around my life and making sure that I get everything I want in life. Making sure I have protection. Making sure I have all these... We were, we were uh, somebody sent me a... Oh, don't do this. Okay, don't, don't send me this. Somebody sent me a VeggieTales last week. Because they know how much I, I hate VeggieTales. But the whole song was, God is bigger than the boogeyman. Silly songs with Larry, right? God is bigger than the boogeyman. The, the pro, and the, the whole song was about how God promises to protect you from the boogeyman. Number one, don't compare a true, real God and his greatness to things that don't exist. Okay? Don't do that. That's problem number one. Number two, he's not promised to protect you from the boogeyman. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm serious with that. He's not promised to protect you in that way. The, the fact of the matter is, bad things happen to God's people all the time. And that doesn't mean that God has somehow left off thinking about you or caring about you. That's exactly what we think, isn't it? We get that diagnosis, that job falls through, our day's not going the way we want, and the first one we blame is God. God, you obviously you don't care, because if you did, this wouldn't be happening to me. No, God never promised you that bad things wouldn't happen to your life. In fact, it's, it's a lot of those bad things that God is using. It's those bad circumstances that God's using to teach you, to, to instruct you, to grow you, and to reveal who he is. God's will for our lives is formed around the promises he's made us in Christ. That means his will for us is not shaped around my life and my desires. It's shaped around his desire. He's told us clearly what he's doing. He's told us exactly what his plan and purpose is in Christ. So what do we need to do then? What do we need to do?
We need to know his promises in Christ and cling to those. What has he promised us in Christ? You see, sometimes people misapply Old Testament promises to their lives. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise to you, and yet that's how people take it. That's just an example. And then when your child doesn't turn out the way you wanted him to, well, I did everything I should have done. God didn't answer his promise. He didn't keep his promise. Sometimes people misapply Old Testament promises and apply them wrongly to themselves individually. Some ignore the word altogether. Some ignore the word altogether and hold promises that he's never made. They base their understanding of God and what God's doing in their life on Christian pop culture or on some made-up version of God in their head. No, God has actually told us exactly what he's doing. He's given us his word. He's revealed exactly what his will is. This is the substance of his promises. And this is what we need to know. This is what we need to cling to. We need to know it. All of our promises, I want you to hear this, all of our promises are found in Christ. We don't have any promises from God outside of Christ. All of his promises for us are in Christ. Can you think of what he's promised us in Christ? Oh, we could spend the rest of the day just thinking about all that he's promised us in Christ. He has promised us, as his people, that our sins are forgiven. He's promised us that our sins are forgiven in Christ. He's promised us that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. He's promised us that. He's promised us that he is going to sanctify us and make us holy and blameless before him. He is going to do in us what we could never do in and of ourselves. He's going to make us like his son, like Jesus himself. Did you know that? That's where you're going. That's your end. You're going to be like Jesus. That's where he's taking you. Don't you want that? Oh, that's far better than anything else I could ever imagine on this earth. He's making us. He's promised that he is going to make us like Jesus. He's promised us eternal life that begins now. He's promised us that death is not the end. That death is actually the beginning of life. Do you have that perspective Death is the beginning of life. It's not the end. The greatest fear people have is to die. Did you know to die is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you? To die is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is to be separated from the God who created you and to endure his eternal wrath. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. But his son, Jesus, has taken the sins of his people and the wrath of God. He has endured the wrath of a holy God for my sin. And he has risen from the dead and secured our life, our justification, our eternity with his resurrection. So for the believer, 
we have no reason to fear death. Why would you fear death? Think of a couple reasons. I think people fear death because they're afraid of judgment. I think a fear of death is our own doubt and our own fear of being judged. Oh, in, in Christ, he's promised us there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's promised us that. I think sometimes people fear death because they're afraid of how they're going to die. They don't want it to be painful. Oh, but he's promised us that he will go with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we have no reason to fear evil or pain or distress. He's promised us. I think sometimes people, they fear death because they love this life a lot. They love this life. It's wealth and it's treasures and it's comfort and they can't imagine not having this life. Oh, for the believer, we have something far better. Do you believe his promises? That death is not the end, but it's just the beginning for the believer in Christ? Do you actually believe that? He has promised us that nothing will separate us from the love, his love in Christ. Nothing. I want God's best for your life. I pray for God's best for your life. Again, that question, what is his will? What, is, what does God want to do with my life? Do you want God's best for your life? Do you want his will? Listen, if you're in Christ, I want you to hear this and, and go away with this. You already have his best in Christ. You already have his best. People are paralyzed in their decision-making because they don't want to miss out. I don't want to mess out of the best. You already have his best. You've already been given everything in Christ. The rest is just gravy, man. We sang, and I tried to pick songs here that would communicate what we're going through here in the text. Can I read that last song we sang, Christ, the sure and steady anger? Christ... The sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, when my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon. 
Clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation. Ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. As the Lord brought Paul all the way home, he in Christ will bring us all the way home. Christ, the shore of our salvation. Reach that shore. Ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Father, we thank you for your promises in Christ. We thank you that you are faithful to those promises. We thank you that you have given us everything that we could ever want or ever need. You have given us in Christ. The lack is not in Christ. The lack is in our understanding. The lack is in our sight. The lack is in what we know and what we believe. That's the lack. You have given us everything we need in Christ. I pray that you would remove the stubborn hearts, that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would remove this love for material, physical, temporal life, and that you would, by your grace, help us cling to your great and precious promises in Christ. I pray for every soul here that does not know Christ but is trying to live, is trying to sail in this life without that anchor, without Christ as their anchor. I pray that you would convict them of their sin. Show them your payment that you have put forth for their sin in Jesus himself. Show them the truth. Dawn on them the truth of the resurrection and bring them to the place of repentance and faith in you. We pray all of that for your glory and by your power. Amen.